Hello and welcome to the Denver Diatribe, a weekly discussion of culture, news, and stuff as it pertains to Denver, Colorado, the most astonishingly fascinating metropolitan area between Pueblo and Loveland. This week on the show, a belated civil unions bill postmortem, ranting on RTD's fare increases, and if a gun was pointed at your head, which Denver suburb would you live in and why, or would you just have them pull the trigger? In the studio, we have Westward's Joel Warner, freelance writer Erica Grossman, and your favorite washed-up author and ex-journalist, me, John Dicker. All right, let's get to the postmortem, which we're, you know, we are very belated on this because this happened uh, April 1st. Um, but basically, the civil union's bill uh, was killed after passing the House. It was killed in the Judiciary Committee uh, by a completely party-line vote of five to six. Uh, where does this leave this issue? You know, are we going to see a ballot measure? Why was it killed? Um, discuss. Joel. Well, I was kind of, kind of intrigued why you brought this up as one of the, as one of the topics you seemed that you had some pretty strong opinions. I mean, in my book, I wasn't all that surprised that the Republicans tried to quietly do away with this, you know, not within a full vote within the House, but just, you know, with a quiet kind of death in the Judiciary Committee. Yep. So to me, it was like, oh, surprise, surprise, it didn't pass again. here. I wouldn't, call, I wouldn't characterize it as a quiet death, only because there was like eight hours of testimony on mm-hmm. both sides. Um, so, you know, which is which makes it even more sad, more sad because people really went out of their way to go and give this testimony. And chances are people's minds were made up beforehand anyhow. I think it's something that will definitely come back on the ballot specifically because that seems to be the reasoning that most people um, who voted against it, that seemed to be their reasoning. The the ostensible reason. Right. Was that voters already decided on this in 2006. So there's no reason for us to change that. Um, But it's 2011 and five years can make a pretty big difference. So I, I, I think that we can anticipate to see it back on the ballot. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm interested because the ballot measures in favor, at least my understanding of it in other states, is ballot me- measures in favor of civil unions and gay marriage don't do that well, despite polling. Um, and I think that's because of the fear factor that, the, quite frankly, the religious crazies can, can rile up among their base. I don't know. I don't know where the money is. You know, I know there's the, you know, Tim Gill's foundation. Tim Gill will save us. Uh, that's what I would like to think. But I, I do find it interesting because on this show, you've heard me certainly uh, ring a premature death knell for the religious right and specifically for these kind of homophobic uh, initiatives. So, you know, this was a, maybe this was the last gasp. I'd love to believe that. Maybe it's not. The other interesting thing that we were talking about just before we went on the air um, was, how a couple of the more moderate members of the judiciary, I'm trying to remember their names, one was from Sterling, one was from Loveland. Uh, the reports were that they kind of hemmed and hawed before their no, or took a long pause before their no vote. Like they're kind of like they're, I'm holding my nose or I'm, I'm admittedly a political coward for doing this. We don't know what goes on in the back rooms, you know, what uh, the part. Do you want their names? Yeah, I do. It's Brian uh, Del Grosso, uh, Jerry Sonnenberg, and B.J. Nickel. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were all... Pers- pers- the, the pausing three. <laughs> yeah, the pausing three, yeah. Um, which I, I, And a lot of the kind of gay rights supporters had said that this was the saddest part, where people who really didn't believe the crap... And then also we should also mention the 2006 ballot initiative, if I'm not mistaken, was that was an anti-gay marriage initiative, and this was a civil unions bill, 
which is you know not the same thing. And polling, I think, consistently shows that even uh, people who are not supportive of gay marriage are supportive in general of civil union legislation because this is you know stuff like being able to inherit property, uh, hospital decisions, that that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, so therefore, like you said. The big question is, is this like the last gasp of kind of the conservative kind of cultural right here in Colorado? Or is in some ways, is this possibly some sort of preliminary indication that after kind of the purpling of Colorado, you know, thanks to maybe some of the momentum of the Tea Party, now there might start to be a bit of kind of conservative cultural pushback here in this state. And uh, I don't I don't think so, because I don't think the Tea Party is a there they have lots of social conservatives but they don't push generally speaking they don't push social conservative issues on their platform that i mean that was always my understanding of of what they're about um but i don't i don't necessarily th- i mean focus on the family for one has downsides significantly in the, in the last 5 years they've been affected by the economic downturn um i you know i i'm just wondering if this is if the ballot measure if kind of the pro-civil union, pro-gay marriage movement is going to have to pony up for an expensive, hard-fought ballot measure. Is that the only, is that the only way? Or are they going to work the way Tim Gill is famous for doing in pushing out these moderate, uh, these conservative Republicans in districts where he feels like they're, they're vulnerable? Um, <laughs> Don't all shout at once. I mean, that's sort of hard to speculate. I, I would think that the pro civil union folks are going to need to ramp up in terms of what they're, what they're spending and what they're doing to try and get this to pass. Um, but you know, Colorado Springs, you know, you mentioned that focus on the family has downsized, but I, I don't think that their sphere of in- influence has downsized. Right, they're still that. a media empire. Yeah. Um, that, that's, that's fair. And I mean, I think, I think these days there's just all these additional variables going into these elections. I mean, I think we're seeing kind of, the playbooks that have been kind of built over the past decade or so about, about how to win these kind of state elections, local elections, have in some ways been thrown out the window over the past couple of years. Um, you know, I, so, I mean, it's hard to say whether whether the Tim Gill model really will work. Right. Cause, yeah, because he, he, I mean, he does that very strategically and it doesn't certainly work everywhere. Uh, and the model, if there's those, there's a, Josh Green did a piece in the Atlantic Monthly a couple of years ago just about how, Tim Gill, you know, funnels money into state races. And it's, it's basically, you know, a state representative from Iowa might be defeated with a whole bunch of money from San Francisco, New York, and other places where there are a lot of, you know, of Tim Gill's wealthy donors. Um, Let me take a step back, actually, kind of tell listeners who, who Tim Gill is, for those people who don't know. He's the founder of, uh, what's that software company? It's uh, Quark, right? Quark, I mean, yeah. yeah. He made millions through Quark. And he founded the Gay and Lesbian Fund for Colorado. Yeah. I mean, yeah, since he, since he, I don't know if he sold his shares or just made a lot of money. You know, he's been quietly kind of running this political kind of mainframe here in Colorado. Right. For years. And, and nationally. And nationally. Yeah. Um, all right. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but any, any other thoughts on this? No, I mean, you know, you, you bring up good questions, you know, but. And clearly it was... And know, that I have no answer to. Yeah. <laughs> well, if we did, we wouldn't be running a uh, 
weekly podcast, we would have much more. So, oh, I guess the only other point, actually, I, thank you for asking what other points we had so I can answer my own question. <laughs> um, but the only other point that I'm curious about, I might have said this before, but I don't think so, is just in the reporting of this issue, even on, you know, like Colorado Public Radio, Megan Verlee did a, a, a decent story on it. But I'm just, you know, the kind of traditional one side, the other side, they both cancel each out each other out journalism with issues like this. At what point are we going to reach the consensus that the country reached on, say, covering lynching? Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Where it's like, okay, you know, we have your, your gay and lesbian couple who are, who are giving tear filled, tear, you know, heartfelt earnest testimony about what this legislation means. And then you have some idiot qu- quoting scripture that's just completely batshit crazy. That is just not relevant and not support, you know, you can't fact, fact checked, you know, God. Um, when is that, when are we going to stop hearing the other side? It's like, you know, when Al Qaeda blows up something, do we really go to Al Qaeda for a response? Do we give a shit? No, they're crazy. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm wondering. When, when journal, mainstream journalists are going to say, you know what? We're not going to give you your quote about scripture well, or which, junk science. Well, what was that? Which was the, uh, late night talk show that had like, uh, the soundproof box people would, would go into and shout and scream. Do you know what I mean? You guys no. Familiar? no, no, I think it's what we should get. If we get like, you know, here's like the box <laughs> that they can put in the, you know, in the committee, like hearing rooms and the people have those things. Oh yeah. You know, we, yeah, we are completely listening to everything you have to say. Just go in this box and say what you have to say. Right. And they can do their thing. They can, they can, they can kind of wave their flags and whatnot. And right. Just have their say just in their own little box. How about that? Is that a good idea? I think it's a great idea. There we go. <laughs> Problem solved. All right, let's move on to, um, uh, I guess this is Erica, this is your topic, um, just about RTD fare increases, of which I think there have been four in the last five years. Is that right or no? Yes. Well, I know that there's been three in the last four years um, specifically. Um, essentially, RTDs come out with some recent reports about their ridership and – Denver posted an article about a week ago um, noting that ridership is significantly on the decrease, which is a drastic change compared to the rest of the country right now, where public transportation is on the rise. And the response, uh, Terry Howarder, who's the RTD chief financial officer, sort of was like, um, it's because of, you know, fare increase plus, you know, joblessness rates, which is interesting because in their own budget analysis for 2011, they noted that Denver's unemployment is rate is better than the rest of the countries right, right now. And so it just, it, it kind of speaks right now. They, they have, they need to make some serious changes. There's been, I mean, in January, 2008, they raised the fare from $1.50 per ride to $1.75. And now it's at two twenty five, which is it essentially a 50% increase since 2007. Um, right. And I, I just got back from Boston where you can take the T for two bucks and that is a much a city with a much higher cost of living than, than Denver. Absolutely. I just got back from Chicago. The same thing. It was two fifteen a ride as opposed to two twenty five. Um, and it, it's, it's interesting because in 2008, um, RTD was ranked number one by the American public transportation association as having the number one transit in North America and shoot to 2011, and nobody's right. We've seen signs about that on the buses since then. Right. You know, they still have, you know, three years ago, we won this award. Right. And we've won it before. We won it in 2003 and then sometime in the early 90s as well. Um, but I, I think the problem is specifically with this past fare increase, it's become 
more expensive to ride the bus or to ride the light rail than it is to drive and park downtown. And that's absurd. I mean, you can't just keep passing the buck to the riders because it's it's a poor business model. Right. And public transportation, I mean, my understanding is it's it's not meant to make money per se. It's meant to it's a it's infrastructure for a city. Right. Yeah, if you want it to grow, if you want to be considered a world-class city, you need a world-class public transportation system, which we don't we certainly don't have right now. Right. It's it speaks it speaks volumes to um, just how our city plays out on a national level. I mean, we often judge cities by their public transportation. And, you know, it's a good boon for tourism. Um, and it's also something that we need as a city in order to function well. I mean, what, what's happened now is with the recent fare increase, we, we, there's the demographic of people that have the option of riding RTD versus those that are reliant upon it. And those that have the option have now chosen to not write it because it's more expensive than driving their vehicles. So, yeah, you know, and it is fascinating to look at kind of the cultural kind of kind of relevance of that. I mean, you know, you know, part of being a city is the mixing that happens on the public transportation. I mean, you know, you think of the great cities in this country, one of one of the kind of the ongoing just kind of kind of pictures of the city, you know, are these worlds that you see, whether it's on the city buses or whether it's on the subways or whatnot. And if we don't have that diversity, you know, here, you know, in, you know, in Denver's public transportation, I think that does have a cultural impact. I mean, part of the other problem, though, I mean, to be fair, is the budget. I mean, they're they're dependent on sales tax and what's the, and ridership, you know, and, and federal grants and, and, plays a huge role. And they're all down, so, and I think they're constitutionally required to balance their budget. So I do understand the argument of where's the money going to come from. Yeah, right. you know, it's kind of the chicken and the egg thing. I mean, like you said, we, you know, you know, great cities have great public transportation systems. We don't have that right now. You know, they are trying to build it, and they don't have enough money, you know, as it is. Right. And I think that there's a couple things at play there. I think a lot of the money that's come in through federal grants and other places has gone directly toward uh, fast tracks, which is, it's a good thing. You know, uh, we need to build out our public transportation so that it's bigger, so that it's better, so that it's more comprehensive. Um, at the same time, we can't lose our ridership. Ridership, I think, only accounts for 23% of the income. Um, but I feel like there's other things that RTD can do right now to step in and sort of balance their budget if that's what they're required to do. A couple things that come to mind, um, I think that they could cut back on operation costs just by getting rid of some of the ghost town rides that are on there right now. I mean, if you go on the light rail during non-peak hours, it's not heavily populated. Um, I think that some of, you know, some of the rides need to be cut back. And then the other So thing, what are some of the ghost rides? I'm just kind of curious. Well, I mean, I, I say that meaning when you hop on the light rail at 9 p.m. on a Tuesday and you're the only one in the train. Yeah. I mean, that's not that's not something that's really sustainable. You know, you don't operate an entire train for one person to get across town. It's nice, though. It's yeah, it is. You know, it you, is. You run up and Kick down back. and, you know, <laughs> we... Laps. Uh, Make that scene from uh, Risky Business where where Tom Cruise does a uh, does a Bob Seger song, you know, <laughs> his underpants, think... which which I which I never do, <laughs> never do that on the train, never wear my tiny whities and nothing else on the train. 
Swear. Well, they, uh, have, they have security vi- video footage that could oh, prove or disprove this. Shit. Okay. I, <laughs> Anyways, go on. Sorry. Sorry. I didn't mean to go off on a strange um, tangent there for a bit. No, it was a good, it was a good tangent. Okay. Um, I mean, the other thing is that I, I, I don't know about you guys, but I don't understand the way in which fares are checked on the light rail. I, I've never seen anything like it. Instead of just paying to go on like you would in a normal city, it's sort of this honor system where you buy your ticket and then you may or may not get checked for your fare. And I feel like that's ridiculous. Yeah, that, they're, I'm sure they're losing revenue from that. Now, my assumption is at some point somebody must have done some type of study and said that the amount of revenue they lose is less than what they'd have to pay to, to pay. But I have no idea. I mean, that's just my guess, assuming the RTDs actually run with some type of intelligence, and I don't know that for for a fact. Right, and, and that's that's a good point. I would assume that they would have done that study. At the same time, I know it's really easy to get away with it, and I, I can't imagine. Do you? That I'm not going to speak to that. Okay, okay um, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I'm actually I, I'm good at, at paying for my fare, but... I've seen plenty of people. You just hop on and hop off. And I, if I've a security person I've, comes on, then you just get off. I've, yeah, I've, read, not, that. I've read that as well. It's, I mean, it's pretty obvious to anybody writing who's paying and who's not. Yeah. Ooh. So we have to, so we have to do some research here. Just go on there be like, so we can be like, like there'd be like volunteers, kind of like, like the, uh, the guardian angels of like. The undercover yeah, RTD. Yeah, the RTD. <laughs> going as bands, taking people's. Tickets that would be truth squads, citizen truth squads, citizen truth squads. Yeah, Um, I would like a beret for that. Oh, clearly. Yeah. Um. All right. Anything more on this? I mean, I think it's uh, it's going to be interesting to see, especially with when the commuter rail to DIA hits, which is a few years away. Five more years. No, no, it's not even five. It's It's twenty sixteen. I thought. I think it's twenty fifty. Actually, well, okay. Yeah, somewhere around there. Yeah, between three and five years, which which actually seems pretty damn close to have a train to DIA, which I'm is necessary. Yeah. yeah, very. I'm necessary. pretty excited about that. Oh. Well, we'll be covering this for five, four and a half more years here <laughs> at the Diatribe. The RTD watch, the truthfulness watch. All right, let's uh, move on to our our suburban question. Uh, this is just you know this is just a fun topic. I think Jared, uh, who's off today thought of, and if you had to live in a Denver suburb, and we're not counting, Boulder does not count as a Denver suburb for purposes of this argument, which one would it be? Because as city dwellers, we all look down upon anyone who doesn't live in the city, of course, because we are so much better. Clearly. Exactly. Clearly. Okay. Go, Joel. Oh, I have to go first? Sure. To say I'd live in Arvada, I have to say. Uh, just because, you know, it seems like as one of the first suburbs... It you know it has a real town center okay. you know you know it's a nice kind of square um, just kind of driving around it you know it actually seems like more of like an old fashioned East Coast suburban town like when I grew up with around the city of Boston um, at the same time they have kind of you know you know like their new movie theater too I mean and they literally have the best rec center possibly like in the like entire state it's called. Uh, the Apex Center, and the thing is freaking like the Disney World of rec centers. Really? Oh, it's huge. It's huge. The thing is like multiple like multiple pools and like slip and slide type slides. It's it's freaking amazing. So clearly I would live in Arvada. They also have the Arvada Center, which is nice. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, a good call too. Yeah. Um, I would go with Edgewater. Edgewater. 
I feel like that's sort of cheating, but I, I'm going to go ahead and count it just because, well, it's close to downtown. I love Sloan's Lake. And it's only, what, less than a square mile? I mean, <laughs> I feel like that gives you exclusivity points. You know, suddenly, you know, you're in this coveted little community. Plus, it's its own municipality. So you have your own mayor. Oh, wow. I feel like you could climb the political ranks pretty quickly. <laughs> so you want to take over the town of Edgewater is what you're saying. I mean, if 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 someone pointed a gun to my head and said, leave Denver and go okay. to the suburbs, then I feel I mean, like the would... only clear step after that is mayor of Edgewater. Yeah, okay. Now, Plus if we expose sign... your whole kind of like uh, – your recent attempts to not pay for your uh, your riding on the trains is that going to hurt I the mayoral campaign? Pay. Always, I, I'm pay. going on record now. Oh, oh wow, here we go. <laughs> yep, as saying that I always pay for my RTD fare. The sign is nice. Now, here's my question about that. Um, right by the sign, there's that big uh, mural right by um, the hardware store that kind of shows like Sloan's Lake, you know, 1920s, like the old timey like women with the parasols, and it's part of the mural there. There's like a paddle boat in Sloan's Lake. Have you guys seen this? Like, no. Like, there's a big like mural like right there, like on Main Street, and it has like a paddle boat in Sloan's Lake. And I want to know if that's really like if that's like historically accurate. I want to know if there was once like a Sloan's Lake paddle boat. And so I want to bring it back. I think that that's likely. I mean, they have dragon boats in there. I'm sure that a paddle boat's gone in once so, or twice. So, 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 so as part of your kind of mayoral, like. Candidacy, will you? Yeah, will you bring back On my the honor, long lost loans like paddle boat? I absolutely will. Okay, okay. Like a steamship, actually. You know, like the Mark Twain esque right. steamships. So you can, you can do that. I, you I think I can. Okay. I, I'm willing to take on the challenge. Okay, very good. Yep. Okay, heard here first. All right, I'm gonna hedge my bets, kind of in between you two, and go with Wheat Ridge, uh, just because the, I have a friend, uh, friends who live out there, and they have a fantastic view. You're pretty close to the highlands and then you're pretty close to Arvada, which I would probably be my next choice. Um, and so yeah, geographically I think it, it works and that, that's why I'd go for it. But, 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 but in some ways I feel like Wheat Ridge like, doesn't feel like a real town. It feels like it's kind of the in between of all those places. I feel like it doesn't feel like its own. You're town. right. And that would be the, that would be the minus. Yeah. I but mean, still, but you'd still... be like, here I am in Wheat Ridge. Like, yeah, like how would you feel that? Like, I feel like I'd want to be where I am. I want to feel that, you know, like feel, yeah. Um, but I mean, their their street signs have the little piece of wheat on them. Doesn't oh, they that do? make you feel like I you're didn't in notice a, that? In That's why city. they have it. Yeah. They're like, oh look, since we are Wheat Ridge, we're gonna precisely. Yeah, we're gonna have wheat on our street. Well, okay, fine. Well, that's well, that's a little bit better actually. If you can have wheat on your street signs. Yep. So that's 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 where I would go with. Um, all right, diatribe listeners, you should feel free to weigh in and tell us why we're wrong or or right on our Facebook page. It's or, pretty interesting how we all pick Northwest Denver, like yeah. the rest of Denver, like no, I don't no, want to go anywhere near that place. Yeah. No, like, no, no, no votes south. No <laughs> votes for Westminster. No votes for uh, Parker, uh, Littleton, Centennial, Aurora, Englewood. Well, yeah, interesting. Yeah, um, but not one, too surprising. <laughs> so. Yeah, tell us uh, via social media why we're a bunch of assholes. Uh, we'd appreciate <laughs> it. Um, let's move on to love and hate. Let's start with Erica. What do you got? Um, I'm going to love on some Denver independent business this week. The other day, Rolling Stone uh, voted Twist and Shout as one of the top record stores in the nation. And I also went to an event at Tired Cover last week, and uh, the author I was seeing spoke very highly and, and noted that Tired Cover was her favorite bookstore. And 
every once in a while, it's just good to kind of take a step back in this cow town and realize that we have some really strong artistic independent businesses that get national accolades. Cool. Yeah. That is a, that's a, that's a very nice love. Thank I think you. in the past I've hated on tattered cover because they don't stock their shelves very well. But <laughs> so that balances it out. Okay. Um, Joel. Good job, John. On that. Yeah. Do, yeah. <laughs> okay. I have some hate this week. All right. right. Uh, yay for hate. Yay. Yay for hate. Um, so finally, two days before they were due, I finally did my taxes yesterday, and I used one of those programs, like what's it called H and R Block, and one of those things. <laughs> I don't remember what it was. I already blocked it. But um, you know, once you once you finalize it, they say, oh, you know, if you want to submit this uh, to Colorado like electronically, it's going to cost you like nineteen ninety nine or something. You know. On top of the sixty bucks I already paid for the program, and I thought about it, but then I then I went and looked online. You can do it for free through Colorado's like website. Like it takes about five minutes of filling out this like one or two forms, and it's free. And you don't have to pay the freaking twenty bucks to like tax cut your H and R block. So so screw you know all these programs for trying to uh, trick us Colorado taxpayers into into giving them more money. When it can be done for free. So all of us listeners um, who are listening to this uh, today, Monday, um, and you haven't done your taxes yet, <laughs> one, shame on you, and two, don't pay to submit it to the state. All right. Smash the state. Um, I am going to hate on uh, the Denver Post's recent profile by uh, Nuggets beat writer Benjamin Hockman of billionaire crunky Skyon. Am I pronouncing Skyon right? This is is it Skyon? It's Skyon, I think. I would think it's Skyon. It's not Skyon uh, like that. Anyways, like Josh Crunky, who, as a member of Sam Walton's Lucky Sperm Club, is now <laughs> president of the Nuggets and governor of the Avalanche. His father, you know, Stan Crunky, owns Arsenal, St. Louis Rams, the Mammoth. Uh, he, ha- he had to basically devolve from power because NFL rules stipulate you can't uh, own cross plot. You can't own a- another franchise in another major sports league, I believe. Uh, so that's why his son, who's 30, and I have no beef with his son, but this story is so sycophantic. It's like, uh, comfort the afflicted, afflict the comfort, comfort the billionaires. That, that's what, it's such an ass-kissing story. Let me just read you, like, the lead from it, just, just to give you an idea of what we're talking about. Um, uh, the Walmart heir filled his cart, patiently waited in line, and then, wouldn't you know, actually paid for his items at a Walmart store. <laughs> Oh, what a fucking humanitarian. Oh my god. I just, did you know, and it also points out that he shops at, he eats at McDonald's and he watches Entourage. He's just like you and me. But this, this is an example of a beat writer feeling the need to kiss ass of the corporate owner. Who knows, maybe some article he wrote previously pissed them off, but it is just, so it just made me cringe reading the whole thing. And I, I did actually read the whole thing. If you're wondering also the, you know, Crunky built the, you know, his sports empire. Um, and then his, uh, Josh Crunky's mother, Ann Walton is the daughter of Bud Walton, who's Sam Walton's and the Walmart founder's brother. And just with this, you know, your Waltons really well. <laughs> yeah. It's like I wrote a book on Walmart yeah, or something. Imagine that. Um, but, uh, uh, <laughs> Anyway, it, just the coverage of this, it's just, it's just bad writing. It's a period, there's a bunch of other, you know, cliche ridden sentences, uh, that I, let me see if I can find, uh, I thought I had one of. John has his, uh, 
Copy everything Monocle on right now, actually, guys. Crunky runs two of the four major pro franchises in town and will for years, fueled by his Midwestern work ethic, calculating business mind, and a sizable chip on his shoulder. He never goes on to (laughs) what is exactly is his Midwestern work ethic? What exactly is his calculating business mind? They gave a little bit of glimpses into that, but there's just like that type of cliche, you know, in in place of actual examples. Um, It's just... Carred piece of journalism and boo to the Denver Post for basically, I don't know if they run it on their front page, but it was treated like a front page story on their website. So I say boo. Boo. All right. That's all the booing we have time for this week on the Diatribe. Uh, you can come boo at us at, at Denver Diatribe on Twitter. Um, go to our Facebook page, go to our website, denverdiatribe.com, and we will see you next week.